the Puritan, Richard Sibbs, once said this. The force of gunpowder is not known until some spark lights it up. And oftentimes, the stillest natures, if crossed, discover the deepest corruptions. Friends, what happens when you don't get what you want? What happens when you don't get what you want? Do you respond like a, like a little one-year-old? I have one of those around my house right now. Who has pretty much no self-control. And they either start screaming or they start hitting something. When we don't get what we want, do we usually not pay attention to how we respond? And simply think it's okay to, be held, uh, to, to behave selfishly. Have you ever thought about how responding to not getting what we want actually says something about our hearts? Is there gunpowder in your soul that's ready to go off? Please open your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible or if you're using the pew Bible there in the, in the chair, the back of the chair in front of you, the page number is found on 587. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you are more than welcome to take that Bible with you. Just consider that a gift from our church to you. James chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Remember, we're coming off the passage in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, that's talking about the contrast between worldly and heavenly wisdom. If you'd like to go back, those are on our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can go listen to that sermon. And you might remember how James tells the reader that if they have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in their hearts, that they should not, be, they should not boast, that they should not be false to the truth. Friends, the warning there is about hypocrisy and how people will go along with life as if nothing's wrong while there is jealousy and selfish ambition brewing in their hearts. Living one way on the outside while envy and self-exaltation is eating at them on the inside. And as this hypocrisy is continuing, they live on as if nothing is happening in their life. Friends, the warning from James is that this kind of worldly wisdom is not from God. But it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. He's referencing the destructive and decaying nature of jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. We may not think it has teeth at first, and then it begins to bite. And he concludes that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder There will be every vile practice. But then he talks about wisdom that's from above. Talking about the attributes of God's wisdom and how he is eager and willing to give it to you if you ask him. He says this wisdom is pure. This wisdom is peaceable. It's gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. This wisdom is impartial and sincere. James reminds us that in order to practically have a church full of people who sow peace and not disorder, we need God's wisdom. It's not optional. We need it. It is impossible to cultivate unity when the Spirit of God is not present, having already given that unity. And from the qualities of the Spirit of God that wells up in the life of believers comes heavenly wisdom. When we have the Spirit of God living in us, it is is something we must cultivate. It's something we we have to till the ground Because when we sow jealousy and selfish ambition through slander and gossip among God's people, you will reap disorder. You will reap every vile practice. And ultimately, we're going to reap unrighteousness. So James, his warning is how to sow seeds of peace that will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now we're coming hot off 
the contrast, that contrast between that wisdom, that worldly wisdom, and that heavenly wisdom. And this sermon actually marks the eighth sermon in the book of James. But up to this point, we've dealt with the topic of, of trials. We've dealt with the topic of testing back in chapter 1 and asking God for wisdom in light of those trials to learning that when we are being tempted, we are not being tempted by God. But we are being lured and enticed by our own desires, which leads us to sin. We've seen that all good gifts come from God. And see, James say that when we hear the word of God, we don't simply need to be hearers of the word, but we must be doers of the word. We've learned that religion, what true religion and what false religion is, and also what it means to show partiality toward one another, valuing people who who dress well or carry themselves well, or those who have social status, valuing them and not valuing those who don't have what we think will get us ahead in life. And in a pivotal passage in this book, we've seen how faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. Is it true faith if your faith is not authenticated by working for the Lord, by serving the Lord? Works must follow faith if it is true faith. Then in chapter 3, verse 1 through 12, James talks about the power of our tongues. How the tongue is a world of unrighteousness staining the body and itself is set on fire by hell. And after that passage, we come to the chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, which is what I referenced just a moment ago. And now we're in chapter 4. A few things that we need to keep in mind when we come into this passage. The first thing, in the middle of his discourse about the tongue, our selfish ambition and division, James interrupts. He interrupts this this train of thought and turns it into a passionate appeal to God's people to repent from their worldly behaviors and submit themselves unreservedly once again to their gracious but jealous God. James gathers up all the detailed issues that he deals with in his letter and basically everything we just mentioned into this comprehensive mandate. So if anywhere... It's in this passage where we find the heart of James's letter. The passage we're about to deal with is, is where all the rivers run to. So if you're looking for where all those veins run or where all the passages run in James, this passage, chapter 4, verse 1 through 10, is that pivotal piece. The second thing that we need to notice is that James is introducing to us a new word he has not used up to this point. So this is the only time in the book that the word grace is used. The only time. There is no other time except in verse 6 it's used twice. Only time in the entire book. And the word is used two times. Yeah, two times in verse 6. And grace, of course, is the divine favor. It's a divine favor given to undeserving sinners. So because of that, God, God's grace is what gives this passage much of its shape. So if you're taking notes, I have four points. Four points to this sermon. The first is, 
the quarrelsome nature of our ungodly passions. The quarrelsome nature of our ungodly passions. That is verses 1 through 3, and then also verse 11. Point number two is the spiritual condition of our ungodly passions. The spiritual condition of our ungodly passions. That's verse 4. Point three is God's response to our ungodly passions. God's response to our ungodly passions. And that's verses five through six. And then point four, our response to God's opposition of our ungodly passions. Our response to God's opposition of our ungodly passions. That's verses seven through 10 and including verse 12. So beloved, as a result of today's sermon, as a result of, of, of the sermon that you hear today, and my hope is that we all come away knowing this. God opposes and will judge all pride, all unfaithfulness, and all self-exaltation. He will not share his glory. And yet, he is inclined toward giving grace to those who humble themselves before him and who grow content in knowing that God will exalt us when he sees fit. So the first point, the quarrelsome nature of our ungodly passions. That's in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 through 3 reads this way again. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, because we're coming off the passage contrasting this heavenly wisdom and worldly wisdom, James appears to be addressing the result of this jealousy and selfish ambition in the hearts of the hearers. And what's the result? Quarrels and fights. So basically, James is asking, what happens when earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom of this world comes into the church? What happens? So verses 1 through 3 is, is what outlines that result. Notice first how James phrases verse 1. He starts with a question. He says, what, ca what causes fights and quarrels among you? Then he follows the question with a rhetorical question. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now with that first question, James is, is asking for a purpose. He's asking, summarizing that the purpose of the question of verse 1. So putting it positively, he says, you fight and quarrel because your passions are the cause of the war within us. And the war within us is the cause of the fights among us. So it's here that I would like to talk about verse 11 very quickly. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He says, The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
So what he's doing is he's circling around to talking about slandering at the end of chapter of verse 10. So to, to speak evil in this verse 11, it literally means to slander. And your version might even say that. This is not, this is not restoration type of judgment. This is not a Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 kind of judgment. Instead, James is saying that we are that they're refusing to submit to the law and slandering one another. They're placing themselves above the law as its judges by slandering one another. He's saying that they're, they're not doers of the law, which is something that he's already addressed in chapter 1, 19 through 27. He said you place judges, you, you judge yourselves, you, you judge the law by slandering one another. You place yourself in judgment over the law. So James is turning up the volume of the fighting, quarreling, slandering, and judging one another. And this is common when we seek to gratify our jealous and selfish passions. Beloved, is there, there, is, there is no fight or quarrel in our lives, whether it's in our families, our schools, our jobs, our friendships, and even the church that does not first originate in our passions. There is no fight or quarrel that ever breaks out that does not first originate here. Like a champion boxer spends months training his body for one fight. In the same way, we spend weeks steeping in our jealousy and selfish pride until all at once a fight breaks out. Notice how James doesn't say that our passions are in a fight. He doesn't even say that our passions are in a battle. He says our passions are at war. Brothers and sisters, if you would consider yourself a Christian, if you are filled with the Spirit of God, there is a war taking place in your passions. A spiritual tug of war. On the one hand, we have our desire for ungodly cravings to be satisfied. And on the other hand, we have the Spirit of God, the living God, living within us, causing us to desire things that are contrary to our war with the flesh, to our flesh. In an article, Tony Rinke, he writes this, At root, sin is not wrongdoing. It's wrong adoring. Beloved, what are you adoring in your heart that isn't God? What are you adoring in your heart that isn't Christ? This isn't a battle of, of whether we do right or wrong, but of who we worship. Who are you worshiping? What sin might be stored up in your heart right now that you can think of as I'm saying this, and you know that you're adoring that and not Christ. Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. Friends, we are idolaters at heart. We are inclined toward worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We look at God's creation and often we don't respond with worship for God but instead we respond with 
desire for, for the gratification of our desires. We use God's creation to gratify our passions and not to adore him. Friends, James isn't simply saying we fight with each other because we have passions at war within us. But more than that, we are quarrelsome because we crave self-exaltation. We are quarrelsome because we crave self-exaltation. And James plays this out with two scenarios. If you read verse 2 through 3, he gives those scenarios and he shares how those fights and those quarrels unfold. Verse 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Friends, it's clear that what they desire is the gratification of their passions. So we have desire and covetousness along with the inability to obtain whatever they desire and covet. And the result is murder. It's fighting. It's quarreling. Now, I don't believe James is literally saying that they're killing one another. There are some who think that. But I believe he's using hyperbolic language to describe their deep-seated hatred for each other because their their desires are not being gratified. They're not being satisfied. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. And much of what James says can actually be connected with with what Jesus said. And if you remember back in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22, He may have been there when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. He's saying their hatred is a murderous hatred. But then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Friends, here we see that James is condoning that we need to ask for what we want. But then he says, you don't receive because you, what you ask for, you ask wrongly. The word there is literally badly. <laughs> you ask badly. To spend it, to spend your petitions on your passions. Think about the simple fact. Friends, think about the simple fact that what we ask for is what we want. What we ask for is what we want. And that might be just as simple as it can be, but it's just true. Now think about what you ask the Lord for consistently in prayer. And then ask yourself, what does that reveal about my passions? We shouldn't feel bad when we desire good things and ask for those things in prayer as long as we don't turn those things into idols. By asking for those good things, are we actually idolizing happiness? Are your prayers primarily about your happiness or God's glory? Is the forgiveness of your sins enough to make you and keep you happy in Jesus? Friends, God desires to make you happy in Christ. 
Our God desires to delight our souls in him. And he is enough. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God desires to give us good things. Beloved, it's a wonderful thing that we can come to our Heavenly Father and we can ask Him for good things. It is a wonderful thing that we can do that. And we need to ask Him because He enjoys giving good gifts to His children, but our hearts are evil. They're so evil that we can pollute and we can distort even the good gifts God gives. We can idolize them. We can make them about our happiness and not God's glory. We can look at the painting, the canvas of creation, and glorify ourselves and not glorify the painter, the artist. So we need more than good things. We need more than what God can give us as a result of the good things he can offer. We need more than that. We need him. We need Christ. That comes to number two, the spiritual condition of our ungodly passions. And that is in verse four. Verse four reads this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, what we have here is, the, is for sure the sharpest rebuke in the entire book of James. And maybe the entire New Testament. It's debated. We see James lay out three conclusions about how the spiritual conditions about the spiritual conditions of those he's writing to. The first thing he says is that these people are adulterous. The second thing he lays out is he says that they are hostile to God. That's what the word enmity means. They're hostile to God. And the third thing he says is that they are enemies of God. Now, if you have the KJV or the NKJV or New American Standard Bible, those versions will either add or say at the beginning of verse 4, the word adulteresses. And that is on purpose. James is not calling those who he's writing to adulterers. He's calling them adulteresses. So a question that we need to ask is why? Why is he calling them adulteresses? Well, if you look back to verses 1 through 3, it doesn't say anything explicitly about adultery. Uh, it only talks about our passions, our desires, covetousness, uh, and expresses itself in murder, fighting and quarreling. Although the word passions, it does have a sensual nature to it. There's nothing explicitly about anything referring to it being adulterous. But that primarily means the, the, the pleasure of our senses. So what James is doing is he's referring back to the Old Testament. Old Testament Israel. It would make sense that he's drawing on the history of Israel. 
when God was the husband of his people and Israel was the adulterous wife who would whore after other gods of the nations around them. Friends, you can go read about this in Judges. You can see how this plays out in the life of Israel. And you can go to Hosea to see explicit, an explicit edition of, of Israel's adultery. You can go read those too. They're, they're very clear. And remember, James is writing primarily to Jews. I mean, he even says at the beginning of his letter, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's a clear reference that he's writing to Jews. So the history of Israel would have been extremely, extremely relatable to the recipients of this letter. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. So to understand what James is saying, we could summarize it in this way. He might say to those he's writing to, he says, you know how you look back at the history of Israel and you might say, I would have never done that. That's bad. That's how we often respond back to the, the tree of the garden in the beginning. I would have never done that. Well, James might say this. No, you would have done that. And in fact, you are that. You are the people who break covenant with your God. You are the people who run after the gods of the nations and forsake the one true God. You are the people who set up high places and worship at the feet of statues made of wood and stone. You are the people who intermarry with other nations and abandon the God of your salvation. He says, you are the people who, when you hear the word of God, do not listen. You are the ones who persecuted the prophets. You are not Elijah in the story. You are the prophets of Baal. You are not Moses. You are the people dancing around the golden calf. You are not Daniel in the story. You are not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story. You are those who bow down to idols. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you desire to be a friend of the world, you oppose God. Beloved, ask yourself, ask yourself a sober question. Are you a friend of the world? Would the people that you work with say that you are? Would your family who sees you all the time put you in that category. And after you ask yourself that, ask yourself this, do your desires agree with that confession? Because friends, we must know, we have to know that our spiritual condition apart from the grace of God is that. Apart from God, we are that. We are the adulterous people of the Old Testament. We're not David slaying Goliath. We are the fearful Israelites on the sideline because we don't want to fight.
We are not simply spiritually sick. We are dead in sin and in rebellion to God. We are not born spiritually neutral. We can lean one way or the other. No, we are born on the freight train headed for destruction. We desire that which God is not pleased with. And friends, that's not anyone's fault but ours. That's our fault. Ask yourself, are you a, are you a friend of the world? Because friends, by implication, that means you're an enemy of God. Are you a friend of the world? Because by implication, it means you're an enemy of God. Is, anything in your, is there anything in your heart that you desire that would suggest that you're a friend of the world? John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says the unmortified soul or the soul that isn't seeking to kill sin cannot say uprightly and truly that God is its portion. Having something else that it loves The soul and its affections that should be full of God cannot be full of Him since it is entangled in worldly pursuits. Friends, what worldly passions are entangling your soul this morning? What worldly passions are holding you captive? What strongholds are you in that is not Christ? Where is the refuge that you are seeking if it's not in Christ. Because dependent on whether you're entangled in sin or not, friends, it will show whether you're in enmity with God or you're in friendship with God. Third thing this passage teaches us is in verse 5 through 6. God's response to our ungodly passions. So very quickly, on a side note, if you have a version that reads differently, I would just say that we can talk about that afterwards, but verses 5 through 6 uh, reads a specific way, and we can talk about it uh, after the service if you'd like. But 5 through 6 reads this way. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now James is coming to the heart of this passage. And the first thing we see in verse 5 is where he says that God is jealous for the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Now, some think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, and your Bible might even say the word Spirit capitalized. And it just depends on how you interpret it or how you you see that. But I believe the actual word is actually a reference to the human spirit. Um, It's it's more like the Genesis 2, breath of life spirit. But either way, the application is the same. James is introducing the Old Testament idea of divine jealousy. And it makes perfect sense in reading this passage in light of the fact that he just finished talking about their spiritual adultery. He just calls them adulteresses, and now he's talking about God's jealousy over them. 
So if you'd like to learn more about the concept of God's divine jealousy, you can go to Exodus 20. You can go to Exodus 34. And in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, Moses is warning Israel as they serve the Lord. Because at this point in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are about to enter the land. And he says this to the people. He says, take care, lest you forget the covenant of your God which he made with you. And make carved images. The form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. This idea, friends, this idea in the mind of the Jewish readers in Joshua or in, the, in, in James would have been so prevalent. They would have known exactly what James was talking about. And in fact, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 19 and 20, Joshua says, you are, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins, if you forsake the Lord, serve other gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Friends, in talking about divine jealousy, D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, theologically speaking, the theme of God's jealous love for his people is tied to the exclusiveness of his claims, like the exclusiveness of a spouse's claims in marriage. Ratchet it up, because God is not only the metaphorical husband of his people, but also their God. God alone is God. For his creatures to betray this first allegiance is not freedom. It is the most horrific idolatry. Precisely because God is personal. His response cannot possibly be dispassionate. He yearns for his image bearers still and is outraged at their adultery. He longs for them with a jealous longing. Now think about the fact that James just called them you adulteresses. And now he's talking about God's consuming jealousy for them. James is trying to jog their memory. He says, remember Nadab? Remember Abihu? Who offered strange fire to the Lord? And the fire came out from before the Lord, and the text says it consumed them. Because they worship the Lord in an idolatrous manner. He says, remember Sodom? Remember Gomorrah? Where scripture says God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. God will destroy and consume all the prideful. And all those who are in rebellion to God, who oppose God, because he will not share his glory with another. You will either bow before God willingly, 
or he will break your knees with his scepter. This is the God of the Bible. And he is a jealous God. Beloved, when you pursue the passions of this world, know that God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. And if you do not know Christ, friend, you will either bow to the king or he will bend your knee for you. God's jealousy, his jealousy unleashes his just wrath on mankind. And how can we bear it? Which is where he comes to verse 6. But God gives more grace. The word literally means great. The word for more there. Some translations might even say greater grace. Douglas Moo in his commentary says, if verse 5 depicts God's jealousy for his people, then James here is reminding us that God's grace is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by that jealousy. Our God is a consuming fire, and his demand for our exclusive allegiance may seem terrifying. But our God is also merciful, gracious, all-loving, and willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. As Augustine said, God gives what he demands. Beloved, when all the requirements of God's jealousy rests on our shoulders, and we know that we've opposed God, we know that we're enemies of God, we know that we are hostile toward God, God gives more grace. Isn't that good news? The only ray of hope in our spiritual darkness is the sovereign grace of God, which alone can rescue us from our inclination to lust for evil things. That God gives greater grace shows that his mercy is greater than the power of sin. It shows that his grace is greater than the power of the flesh. It shows that his grace is greater than the power of the world or the power of Satan. God's mandate for perfection can sometimes feel devastating and unreachable to his sin-stained followers in a broken world. How wonderful then that God's grace is sufficient for our many stumblings. The fiery, consuming jealousy of God is only outdone by his gracious kindness and favor. Friends, there is such comfort in that one phrase. Because it is telling us that God is endlessly on our side. He will never lack what we need. Because he will always have more grace at hand for us to receive. Whatever we lose, when we put ourselves first, we cannot lose our salvation. Because God always has more grace to give. It doesn't matter 
even in the way that we treat God. His resources will never come to an end. God's patience for his people will never be fatigued. His initiative towards us never stops. And his generosity is limitless. Praise God for his grace. We desire and do not get. So we respond with murder, fighting and quarreling. God yearns jealously, and he responds with giving greater grace. As a husband, I'm jealous for the affections of my wife, and anyone or anything that threatens to steal her love from me is met with the strongest of opposition. This is a good thing in our relationship with God, that he is jealous for our affections. It's a good thing. God is infinitely jealous for his people and he will oppose with divine force anything or anybody who threatens their good. God is jealous for the affections of of your heart as a follower of Christ. This is not an insecure jealousy that is afraid that you're going to find something or someone else that's better. This is a secure jealousy that seeks what is best for you by guarding your heart against adulterous passions. He tells us to run from the things of the world and to cling to him in order that we might find all we need. James ends verse 6 by stating God's method. How does he give grace? Verse 6 reads this way. He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not only does God make grace available, but friends, he allows us the opportunity to partake of it. He makes it available and allows us to have it. But we must humble ourselves before him. Which brings us to our fourth point. Our response to God's opposition of our ungodly passions. Verse 7 through 10 reads this way Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This passage lists out ten imperatives. Submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands Purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is making it abundantly clear. To receive the grace of God 
There is no idling along as if nothing happened. There is no idling along. You can't just roll down the highway and say, God, give me more grace. Romans 2 teaches us that we are either repenting of our sins or we are presuming upon his kindness. This is the case for those who are already Christians and those who are not. The response of every human being before a jealous God is to humble ourselves before him. There's no second option. There's no gray area. It is black and white. Now, friends, we could just end here. We could end here, and I could just say, hey, here's ten qualities to be a humble person. Now, go be humble. That's not the idea here. That's not the point of this passage. The idea behind these qualities is self-abasement before God. Think of the book of Jonah. We know that Jonah, originally, at the beginning, he disobeyed the Lord. He wouldn't go to Nineveh, but the Lord got his attention by throwing him into a fish. And then he went to Nineveh. And when he got to Nineveh, he says this in chapter 3, verse 4 through 5. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, Jonah doesn't say, repent. He doesn't say, respond. But they do anyways. They respond correctly. They believe God and they humble themselves before him. Friends, we must know, we have to know that we are not in a quid pro quo relationship with God. We, you know, scratch his back by humbling ourselves. And he scratches our back by giving us grace. That is not how this passage, that's not what this passage is condoning at all. If you have to work for it, it's no longer grace. Because grace is always a gift. By definition, that's what it is, a gift. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. God gives grace to the humble because, not because we work for it, because he says he will. Because he says he'll give it. And because the sinner understands the graciousness of grace. A truly humble person understands where they stand before a holy God. Humble people understand that God doesn't owe them anything. Whether you receive grace is never dependent on your effort, but on God's promise to give it. God owes us nothing, but gives us everything in grace, in Christ. We owe God everything. And yet, how little we actually give him. That is one of the things James is doing 
in this passage, he's drawing a contrast between our stinginess, our selfish ambition, our self-exaltation, and God's liberality in giving what we never have nor never will deserve. But we want it. What we want, we actually can't get. What we need, we often don't want. We want to gratify our selfish desires more often than not. While God holds out grace to us. Once we understand God's jealous wrath, God's jealous love for his people, and the grace he holds out to satisfy that wrath, you can't believe in that and simultaneously not respond. God demands repentance. He calls us to repent of our sins and trust in him to believe in him, and he promises to give grace. So these, tw- these ten qualities go like this. Submit. James uses the word describing a willing, conscious submission to God's authority as the sovereign ruler of the universe. A truly humble person will give his allegiance to God, obey his commands, and follow his leadership. Friends, do you know that there are no heroes in heaven? Only broken sinners. The second thing he says is, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All people are either under the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan. There is no middle ground. Those who transfer their allegiance from Satan to God will find that Satan will flee from them. Because he is a defeated foe. Friends, submit to God. And flee from the devil. The third thing is draw near. Pursue an intimate love relationship with God. The concept of drawing near to God was associated originally with Levitical priests. To come to the tent of meeting but eventually came to describe anyone's approach to God. Salvation involves more than submitting to God and resisting the devil. The redeemed heart longs for communion with God. Draw near. The next thing he says is, cleanse your hands. The Old Testament priest had a ceremonial washing. They'd wash their hands before approaching God. That's in Exodus chapter 30. And sinners would approach him. Those who would approach him must recognize and confess their sins. Or they can't approach him. He says, purify your hearts. Cleansing the hands symbolizes external behavior. This phrase refers to the inner thoughts, motives, and desires of the heart. James is is actually taking directly from, from Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the Lord, the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Next thing he says is, 
be wretched. Be wretched. Friends, this is the state of those truly broken, truly broken over sin. He says, mourn. God will not turn away a heart broken and contrite over sin. Mourning is the inner response to such wretched brokenness over our sins. He says, weep. The outward expression of an inner sorrow. And then he says, turn your laughter to mourning. This is actually the only time it's used in the New Testament. The word means flippant laughter. Of those foolishly indulging in worldly pleasures. The picture is of people who give no thought to God. They give no thought to life. They give no thought to death, no thought to sin, no thought to judgment, and no thought to God's holiness. And they laugh about their sin. James calls on such people to mourn over their sin. Like the passage we read earlier. Beating your breast because you know how sinful you are in front of a holy God, understanding that if he gives you anything, you've already received more than you deserve. Being mournful and wretched and broken over our sin. Beloved, a truly humble heart can say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. When was the last time that you grieved for your sin against God? Do you treat your sin flippantly? From maybe the reason you can't seem to get over that sin you're struggling with is because you have not first submitted to God. You're seeking to draw near without submission. You're seeking to resist the devil without submission. It won't work. You will continue fighting. You will continue putting forth effort, but until you're willing to humble yourself before God's mighty hand, you will not have victory. Humble yourself before the Lord. There will never be revival in our lives, in our church, or in the community until we learn the forgotten practice of self-humbling. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about how awareness of sin grows in times of revival. He says, go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God. How terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, 
have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Beloved, when was the last time you asked the Lord, grow my contrition over my sin? Lord, cause me to be more contrite. Lord, cause me to be more grieved. Lord, why don't I mourn over my sin? Lord, why am I not wretched when I sin against you? See, James in chapter 4, verse 12, finishes this way. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Friends, those who submit to God, he saves. And those who continue in their rebellion against our jealous God, he can destroy. Where are you this morning? Where is your heart before our jealous God? Friend, if you're overwhelmed at your sin, right now you feel the overwhelming weight of your sin against the holy God. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, took upon himself the jealous wrath of God, going to the cross, bearing the wrath, and rising again on the third day to conquer sin, to conquer death forever. And when you place your faith in Christ, you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ. He gives you new life. God is just and will not let the sinner go unpunished. But he has also by his grace justified the ungodly. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Repent of your sins. And believe in him. This is how you can partake of the grace of God. May we say with the Puritan prayer, grant that I may welcome thy humbling in private so that I may enjoy thee in public. Give me a mountaintop as high as the valley is low. Thy grace can melt the worst sinner and I am as vile as he. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you are a jealous God. We know that your wrath lies heavy on those who remain in their pride and and selfish direction and self-exaltation. But Lord, we also know that in Christ you give what we could never achieve. You afford what we could have never bought and you give us freely grace. Lord, help us to understand that your jealousy for us is not bad news anymore. That in Christ we have 
everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, I ask that you would help us to draw near, to resist the devil, to flee from the devil, and to cling to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.